Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 47. The Immunity Syndrome. Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I... I don't feel like doing a show today. I, I'm tired. I'm irritable. I'd rather just turn this thing around and go home. John Champion, come on. Our mission is to explore all of the episodes of Star Trek one by one and suss out the morals, meanings, and messages within. We're not just here to turn away at the first sign of trouble. Plus, I got some stuff that'll pick you right up. And... The first one's free. Cool, then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about stimulants and uh, staying with the show, then it can mean only one thing. It means we're talking about the immunity syndrome, the episode where the Enterprise encounters a, uh, a giant single-celled space amoeba. Well, I hate to correct you, but if we're recording... And talking yeah. about stimulants, then that's what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I forgot. There's a whole other show we do when we're not recording. Uh, yes. <laughs> right? yeah. I'm not saying. I'm just, you know. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the immunity syndrome. Uh, it, it, here we go. Like I said, it's a, a giant uh, space thing that the Enterprise encounters. And, you know, a giant thing that we encounter every week on the mission log is our trivia do it. So without further ado, if you'll let me, Ken, uh, first of all, I just have to mention, hey, there's the Galileo again. Um, the Galileo that seems to get destroyed and reincarnated uh, every time we need it. So we're glad <laughs> to have that shuttle back. Um, however, uh, this is the last time we actually see the interior of the shuttlecraft. They kind of redressed it. They put in some additional computers, some additional equipment. So it looks a little bit different in the shots that we see this time. The Galileo um, honestly is a tiny bit, we've talked about this before, as far as the whole spatial anomaly that is the Galileo. It's a bit like mm -hmm. a TARDIS. It's right, also a bit right. like a TARDIS in that whatever you need, it, it's it, got it. It's yeah. like half TARDIS, half a room of requirement. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Oh, we need computers in the Galileo. This is okay. Well, close your eyes. Okay, look, computers in the Galileo. Oh, you know what we need? We need five chairs in the Galileo. This right. okay. Well, close your eyes. Oh, look, right. five chairs for everybody. Okay, it, it's kind of like when Q gives Bond a a laser firing magnet watch. You know that at some point Bond will need exactly a laser firing magnet watch. Wow, you know? I'll tell uh, you, I'm so mm -hmm. deep now into the whole Star Trek a thing when you said yeah. Q I'm like when did John Delancey meet James Bond <laughs> oh good oh you mean wow, quartermaster good. Q my Quarter apologies Q. Yeah, okay. yeah major boothroyd if you want to be uh, specific um so I'm sure, Ken, that you noticed, as will everybody, the Doomsday Machine music um, used throughout this episode. And it's very hard not to parallel the Doomsday Machine, especially since, as we know from the trivia of the Doomsday Machine, that script was about a giant living creature that eats spaceships. So uh, a lot of parallels between those two stories. Um, the giant amoeba effects were done by Frank Vanderveer. Now, uh, this particular effect was not nominated, uh, but it is very well known, very iconic. Um, and they did very little in the remastering to change that. They just kind of gave it a little more 
color, a little more dimensional look, uh, but they stayed very true to the original if you happen to be watching the remastered HD version. Uh, Frank Vanderveer, it is worth mentioning, was nominated for an Emmy for The Amazing Captain Nemo in 1978, made-for-TV movie, and he won an Oscar in 1977 for the King Kong remake. Um, And one last thing to mention to you, uh, we hope that you follow along with the Roddenberry Discovered Documents. We have a very cool one from Halloween Day, uh, so October 31st, 1967, one of the last days of shooting of this episode. And it is primarily the shuttlecraft interiors, starting the day with the shuttlecraft interiors with Leonard Nimoy by himself and then adding other characters, other actors later on in the day. Now, you say you hope that people follow along with the uh, Discovered Documents. You should probably tell people where they can. How about finding those at missionlogpodcast.com? We'll also cross-link to that from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash missionlogpod. That's a good way to do it. And then the other ways that people can get in touch with us as well, you know, if they have other comments or thoughts that they want to share uh, with this show, face uh, Facebook, excuse me, Skype and Twitter, missionlogpod. Um, as John just mentioned, as far as Facebook, but that's Skype and Twitter as well. You can also call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And as always, uh, check out our very cool place on the web, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. It has been said that it is very cold in space. This week, though, it looks like space is catching a cold. Let's let Ken tell us more. Prologue. The Enterprise is on its way to Starbase 6 for some much-needed rest and relaxation. On their way, they get a garbled message from the Starbase about the Intrepid, a starship manned by 400 Vulcans. The interference is weird, though. There shouldn't be any. Suddenly, Spock is rocked, as if millions of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Except this was just 400 Vulcans. Spock says he felt the Intrepid and the 400 Vulcans aboard die. Kirk and McCoy urge Spock to sickbay. He says he knows what he knows, but he'll go to sickbay. Meanwhile, Starbase 6 gets back in touch. Go to Solar System Gamma 7A. We've lost contact with it and with the Intrepid, which was there. Barely have they headed that way when Chekhov says he scanned Gamma 7A, and it's dead. Act 1. Spock's fine. So McCoy asks, how did you know the Intrepid was destroyed? Dude, he can feel it. He knows that neither the computers nor the Vulcans knew what was up. McCoy marvels at the number of Vulcans lost, which puzzles Spock. Back on the bridge, the deflector shield snaps on. Spock, back at his post, says he doesn't know what's up. He'll be saying that a lot. On screen... Well, that is weird. Looks kind of like a hole in space. Let's call it a dark zone. And it's between where the Intrepid was headed and where Solar System Gamma 7A used to be. Kirk orders a probe sent into it. No sooner is it launched than a piercing whine rings through the Enterprise. Then everybody is woozy and weak. Everybody. On the bridge, on every deck, and in sickbay, where there's a line out the door. Bone starts dealing out stimulants like he's backstage at a Stones concert. Spock has been able to offer no analysis so far. Insufficient data. 
Well, if you can't tell me what it is, tell me what it's not, suggests Kirk. They reverse logic it back to one known and one possibility. It is some form of energy, though a type unknown to anyone, and it may be what killed the Intrepid and Gamma 7A. Kirk has Uhura notify Starfleet that they will be probing the Zone of Darkness, which sounds like more fun than it is. Penetrating the Zone, meanwhile? Definitely no fun. Another piercing whine weakens the crew. Also, the stars are gone now. Bone says things have gotten worse down in Sick Bay. Tough. Kirk orders around the simulants for the bridge. Scotty says the ship has lost a bit of power, though he cannot say why. Spock deduces that the noise was the turbulence caused by crossing an unknown boundary or barrier. They seem to have entered a zone of energy which is incompatible with our living and mechanical processes. As we get closer to the source, it gets stronger, and the Enterprise gets weaker. McCoy says they should leave, though Kirk announces to the crew that they will press on and investigate. Because they're the best, and they got their orders. Well, they're the best for now. Back in sickbay, Bone says, according to his readings, everyone is dying. Act 2. All stop as they try to figure out what the heck is going on, except they're not actually at all stop. While trying to recalibrate, the Enterprise went into reverse, and yet the ship lurched forward. Scotty says the ship is steadily losing power, and Spot calls Kirk to say the ship is being drawn deeper into the zone of darkness. He suggests putting it in reverse, but Kirk says that's what sent them forward. So maybe we try going forward then and see if that sends us backwards. In sickbay, everybody's life signs are dropping. Kirk suggests Scotty nudge the Enterprise into forward. That slows the speed with which the Enterprise is being drawn in, but it doesn't stop it. That also slows the drop in life signs. Bones surmises. The further they get into the zone of darkness, the weaker they get. Scotty says everything mechanical is acting in a pretty much backwards manner, but one thing is for sure, they are losing power. Spock says it would seem that something in the zone is siphoning every kind of energy it can get. He figures that that's what killed the Intrepid and Gamma 7A. Not the zone itself, but something in the zone. Kirk orders Scotty to put all of their power into one massive thrust forward, in an attempt to break out. Scotty says he'll save enough for shields in case it doesn't work, though Spock says if they don't get out, shields will be no good to them anyway. They'll be dead soon after. Kirk and Spock discuss the fate of the Intrepid. They may have tried the same stuff too, but the Enterprise has to try what it has to try. Scotty tries his mega forward thrust, which shakes the ship violently but does nothing to pull them out. All they can do is hold their position for two hours. Yeah, mega thrust cost them a bit of power. On screen, a giant thing. It's the thing that's draining all the energy. They launch a probe, 11,000 miles long, two to 3,000 miles wide, and inside... Ooh, it's so gooey. Protoplasm. And it's alive. Now, long-time listeners, you know what that means. If it's alive, we can kill it. But we'll get to that later. Act 3. Bones figures that the thing is a giant single-cell organism. A big space amoeba. Spock figures the thing is invading the galaxy like a virus. An energy-eating virus. Bones wants to play Fantastic Voyage. He'd like to take a shuttlecraft into the single-cell organism and check it out. Spock says he's the more logical choice. He can do stuff better than Bones can. Kirk says he'll go, though Spock says that's illogical. If something goes wrong, they'll need you on the Enterprise. And besides, you're not a scientist. Bones and Spock pursue their pick-me, pick-me arguments, though Kirk says he'll make the decision on his own. Eventually, he chooses Spock, figuring, sadly, that he's also condemning Spock to die. 
Spock takes the shuttle into the big bacteria, and that takes just about all of the power he has. Up close, Spock says it looks like the giant bacteria has stored enough energy to start reproducing. Spock says he'll send coordinates for the chromosomes and other vital bits inside the cell, then loses voice contact. So, it's going to reproduce. There'll be two, then four, then eight, then sixteen. Eventually enough to encompass the whole galaxy. Are you thinking what Kirk's thinking? Oh yeah, this thing's got to die. Low power message from Spock. Losing life support. Oh, and here's how to kill it. Except that part doesn't come through. Act 4. Bones has a feeling that Spock is still alive, though Kirk's convinced that he's not, and he seems weirdly okay with that. Strange moment for Kirk here. What is this thing? Playing the part of Captain James T. Kirk, Dr. Leonard McCoy. It's a virus invading our galaxy. Come on, let's kill it. You know, if it's alive, we can kill it. We're the antibodies. Let's do what antibodies do. Antibodies? Hey, that gives Kirk an idea. Let's throw all the power to shields except for impulse. Scotty says they'll be sucked straight into the organism, an idea on which Kirk is counting. And so it goes. Surprisingly, the ship is pretty much undamaged passing through the barrier. Now, let's hit this thing with some antimatter. Also, bones. Hit me with another stimulant. On board the shuttle, Spock uses what he figures will be his last recorded words to praise the captain and crew of the Enterprise, the finest ship in the fleet. Kirk, meanwhile, is recording special citations for McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, Kyle, and his highest commendations for Spock, who gave his life in performance of his duty. Antimatter probe lodged in the nucleus of the organism, the Enterprise starts backing out. Along the way, they pass Spock, lasso him with a couple of tractor beams, and, at the risk of losing both ships, pull him along with them. All power is lost. The antimatter bombs explode, or implode whichever antimatter bombs do. And what do you know? The thing is dead, and everybody's fine. Now on to Starbase 6 for some rest and relaxation. The end. Ken, I really appreciate how you reward our listeners with the, uh, it, if it lives, it can die. <laughs> if it's alive, <laughs> you know, we can kill it. We can kill it, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's really good. That, that's uh, a, a little shout out to those of you who have been uh, sticking <laughs> with us for this long, because uh, it'll come up again, I'm sure. Oh, maybe a time or two. Yeah. Well, hey, in, in the original series, and maybe the cartoon, but go ahead. I, I'm trying to figure out a way. I haven't quite come up with a theory yet, but everything that happens in this episode, I blame Lazarus. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I'm working on that. Why would you, I, what? What <laughs> antimatter? All this stuff. I just uh, somehow I blame him. No, there, okay, there's okay. something that happened. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that. Uh, well, first of all, Spock does go around just shooting everybody up full of stimulants. No, 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 you know? not Spock, not Spock. But no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, McCoy, McCoy. Yeah, he goes around shooting everybody up, and and in fact, there's a one moment he walks on the bridge and he's like, "Hey, let me just put this in your arm before I tell you what it is." Exactly. Um, you know, I thought that was kind of cool. Krieger but, strikes uh, again. I'm telling you, Krieger strikes again. This whole thing. <laughs> uh, somebody should write the novel where all of this was just a medical experiment being run by Bones. <laughs> right yeah 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 because he will just shoot you up before i mean like before really even considering it and then yeah. once he's got you good and hooked he's like how many stimulants do you think you can take right well seriously <laughs> you are the doctor how many stimulants do you think i can take and kirk's like just keep me alive for seven more minutes mm -hmm. or together mm -hmm. actually would keep me together for seven more minutes yeah 
doesn't even matter what happens after that. But Kirk, through this whole thing, he's really testy. But, you know, and I, I get it that he's on the stimulants. But, but the episode starts with him very testy, and it just gets worse. He, he even sounds a little hungover in the opening captain's log. Did you notice that? Well, they're tired. I mean, well, yeah, they, but they've I mean, been on a long mission. I mean, Uhura, actually, who does not have a lot to do in this episode, but she's like, she's like elbow up on the console, kind of propping her head up, doing her it, job. It, it, it just seems it, it seems like they're telegraphing the whole thing. Yeah, like, Kirk, you're being recorded. Get it together. <laughs> but it, he literally sounds like, and then we're going we're gonna to go to shore leave, and then a planet, and some Captain's stuff, and log. some things. Ca- Captain's Logie. Captain's, yeah, yes, uh... we're back to Logie Kirk. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but you know, speaking of all of that, I, I, I feel like um, we defend Shatner's acting a lot on our show. Every now and then we've just pointed out where a single moment will kind of stand out. It doesn't quite ring true. But I feel like this is the first time that in an entire episode I haven't really been on board with the Shatner acting. And I realize that he, he's got a, you know, he got the direction like, uh, okay, you're tired. Uh, okay. Now you're on a stimulant, you know, but, um, I, but I feel like uh, a lot of it just doesn't work when he gets excited. Antibodies, antibodies. It, it just didn't ring true to me. All right. um, you know, you're jumping to the end, I think, but that's fine. Uh, well, I, 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 but I, it's an observation I had throughout the whole thing. All right. There you go. I'll, I'll give you the one observation, the one acting note that he apparently liked and, and, and hung on to. Mm-hmm. I think we saw it start a couple of episodes ago, and we're seeing it continue, continue, continue now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got this habit. I think you mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, actually, of there are very few buttons on the uh, on the uh, edge right. of, of, the, of the chair you know, yep. that he sits in the captain's chair. Yep. Uh, one of those we do know will eject a pod, so please yeah. be careful. But he's just, like, slamming his fist down. He does. When, when he's when he, done. When he gets a direction to be tired. Yeah. Well, no, period. Because, yeah. well, I mean, I've watched ahead a tiny bit. Next week as well. Yeah. Just whatever. And every time he does it, I'm like, oh, he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> Just slap that button, somebody dies. Can I, can I can I throw out something that I noticed and I'm kind of curious about? Yeah. Since when does Scotty drive the ship from engineering? Yeah, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> without, yeah. without even warning anybody either. He's like, uh, so Scotty, why don't you, why don't you put the, the ship in, in Ford in the hopes right. of sending us backwards? And Scotty's like, yeah, it seems kind of weird. Right. And Kirk's like, nah, go ahead and do it. And neither one of them says, hey, maybe we should tell somebody. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> that we're gonna do that. Ah, just nudge it. Just nudge it. Maybe yeah. they won't even feel it. Okay. It, it seems like on a ship, the telegraph works both ways, from the engine room and the bridge. Um, hey, I'm really glad that in your uh, in your show summary, very well done. Uh, you pointed out that um, they don't really seem that concerned about Spock being dead. Well, Bones is actually. Bones is a bit. Kirk's like, yeah, well, we got to figure out what to do next. Although he's not actually torn up about it. He's just like, eh, is it weird that I think he's still alive? And right. Kirk's like, uh, yeah, but he's not. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too bad they couldn't give Spock a proper funeral with uh, bagpipes and everything. <laughs> that that yeah. would be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Um, oh, and, and speaking of dead things, um, <laughs> there's a great bit where McCoy – he calls up. Now, we, we have the 
life indicator panels uh, above the sick bay beds, and they show you know little moving uh, uh, not not dials, but little indicators that show you life functions, heart rate, respiration, all that. But uh, there's this bit where McCoy, I don't know if you picked up on it, where he, he calls the captain and he says, "The life indicator on the ship says that we're dying." Yeah, and, and I kept thinking like there, there's this one. I, I'm trying to picture this thing. This is like one readout somewhere. And, and I picture Life Indicator really only has two settings. <laughs> it is either alive. Like living or not so much. Or not alive. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. let's assume that the computer, although it hasn't seemed that this is what's actually happening on the Enterprise at this point, this is more of a next gen kind of thing. But let's assume that the computer is keeping track of everybody's vital signs. It makes mm-hmm. sense that, you know, maybe somebody just for fun would say, why don't we graph all of them at once? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you know, just to see how everybody's doing at any one time. Uh, you know, normally I would think they would be, it would be average. But yeah, okay. yeah. apparently it's, a, it's, it's sloping a, a tiny bit here. Right, right. Um, antimatter to kill a thing. Didn't we do this recently? Like uh, Obsession? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. yeah. Not nearly as groovy um, this time, though. Right, right. And then um, the, the Enterprise, I thought that was interesting. The Enterprise got all its power back when they destroyed the creature. So yeah, so they're fine again. You know? <laughs> they, they just, you know, we use, so it's like if I'm driving my car and my gas tank goes to empty, if I just like crash it into something, then I have a full gas tank again. That's what I learned. It's Star Wars meets Body Wars. It's inner space, in outer space. Bottom line, it's trippy. Right away I thought, well, if any of us try to wrap our heads around the science of the thing, giant, single-celled organism, our our heads would explode. Uh, But there is one little interesting uh, shred here, uh, this scientific idea, I I think, that could be explored, uh, that we are all antibodies in this sort of cosmic scale. You know, I kind of picture a bunch of writers sitting around going, well, what if the universe is just a giant body and there's a giant cell and we're really the antibodies? And they said, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. That's kind of cool. There's a great line. I, I think it's from from cosmos uh where carl sagan says that we as human beings we are a way that the universe interrogates itself through our consciousness and through our reason and now it looks like in this episode we get to add killing giant cells to the job description (laughs) you know i had this weird moment of of i'm not yeah, I understand killing it. I know I made the joke about if it's alive, we can mm-hmm. kill it. But I, I'm kind of with them on this one. You know what? Would yeah, they, I mean, yeah. they, they had said that if it actually split into two, or if it created another one, so if it split into two, then everything within a light year would be mm. jeopardized if not destroyed. So I get killing this. I did also though have a moment of wow, what would it be? Yeah, like what's it eventually going to become? Because if if the assumption is that it's going to grow into something or evolve into something, what would that yeah. thing? Would it be the giant turtle? I mean, when, right, right, when right. is that thing going to be at some point? Which maybe that's why Bones wanted to go in and check it out. I assume it wasn't just to be surrounded by goo. I would hope not. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, this is the, the thing that uh, – well, one of the things that I found most interesting about it is this look at uh, – 
command responsibility because they do have a good exchange about that. I mean, Kirk kind of puts the kibosh on it. It's just like, nope, we're out here to explore. Too bad we're going in. McCoy, not only are we presented with the idea that this is dangerous, another starship just got fried, and that starship is full of Vulcans. So oh, if, you're not, if you're not safe on a starship full of Vulcans, then this is probably pretty dangerous. But the other thing here is that you've got the crew of the Enterprise falling apart. These people, they're lined up outside sickbay. I think McCoy's request is probably pretty reasonable. You know, launch a whole lot of probes, go back and get help. Well, what's going to help you, though? I mean, you're talking about the Intrepid and the 400 Vulcans, and then you're talking about the 400 however many people on board the Enterprise who are at risk. Uh, it was mentioned that Gamma 7A uh, mm-hmm. had billions of inhabitants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, they're sort of like, well, what's the Enterprise going to do? Well, it is the Enterprise. It is the best ship in the fleet. Yeah. But then on the other hand, okay, well, if, if the Enterprise decides that it can't do anything, yeah, bring all the ships you want. Because <laughs> this thing just ate a solar system somehow. See, so you got a billion and 400. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Apparently a billion 850, though, and that's really going to be the tipping point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems like they go in pretty... I, I, just a little, a little foolhardy. I don't know. I, I it, it, this is one of those episodes where I, I sat there and I watched and I wondered, would it play out differently if it were next gen or or another show? And I think the answer is yes. Um, not to say that they wouldn't stay, um, but I, I think some of the decision making would have been different under maybe a different captain. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know actually. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean this this is a this is a um this is a very definite threat. Mm-hmm. This is a very definite danger. This is not the horda. This is not you know, this is not some, you know, big thing that we don't understand. They actually they go ahead and stipulate at one point that the thing's not intelligent. Yeah, I mean, but so it's th- also I mean, not the doomsday machine. Well, it is. I mean, it's not because it wasn't built by somebody or we don't know for certain that it was built by somebody. Mm -hmm. We think it wasn't built by somebody. But, I mean, no, it's not the doomsday machine, but it's still this unthinking, going to eat the whole galaxy thing and eventually the universe. And by the way, if this amoeba is as big as it is, is a single-celled organism, and if somebody built that, then they're huge. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, talk to me hey. about what's going on with um, – with, uh, there's a lot actually going on between uh, Bones and Spock in this episode. Yeah, that was um, – we had a couple of moments. We, we had the reveal here that Spock has this kind of telepathic connection to the other Vulcans. E- even though they were very, very far away, they were in, not in direct contact at all. And then he and McCoy have this uh, exchange where, um, wow, uh, Spock kind of – takes down McCoy a notch, you know, uh, saying that humans are better able to grasp the death of a million. Um, or I'm sorry, they're, 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 it's okay that you're confused because honestly, yes. I went back and forth a couple of times on this. It seemed like he was saying, I don't get you people. You understand like, you know, when a million people die, then you're, you know, then you're torn up. But when one person dies, you just don't care. But then, well, and, but then, if you listen to it again, room in your heart, yeah. If you listen to it again, right? Then you're like, you know, a million people. That seems like it would be a lot, but you know, there's like a story about one person. That's terrible. It yeah. felt. I mean, it honestly felt to me like what Spock was doing was just saying, "People, 
I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, there, there, was, mm-hmm. there wasn't, I mean, for, for all of his logic, there didn't really seem to be logic in what he was saying. It really just seemed like what he wanted to say is, you guys suck. <laughs> well, uh, but, but I do, I, and I'm, I'm going back here and rereading this because, as you said, it's a little convoluted. Um, but he follows it up by saying, yeah, this might have made your history a little less bloody. We, and, and we do this where you read a story of one person who died or, or somebody that you know, you know, family or periphery, and that really has an emotional effect. But then you read in the paper about thousands of people dying in pick a country, you know, Bosnia, whatever. And, and it's harder for us to wrap our minds around that and have true, true sympathy where we truly feel moved to action to go do something. And so yet, I, and well, I, I get it. Well, hold on, though. It seemed to me, though, that Spock was actually arguing the opposite. Because really? what, what precipitated that whole argument was mm-hmm. Bone saying, 400 Vulcans. And Spock's like, yeah, okay, so the numbers impress you, but you know, if one person dies, it's still a tragedy. I mean, and that's, that's, why, that's why I say it's a totally, it's a totally messed up, it really yeah. honestly just felt like it was Spock coming out of a box on humans. And, you know, in fairness to him, 400 Vulcans just died. I mean, it's not yeah. like he lost his whole yeah. planet or anything. Spoiler <laughs> alert, he may someday. In the past, I don't even know how that works. But, I mean, it really just felt like they were, there was a lot of sniping back and forth uh, between yeah. these. There, there's also this weird sort of, we're back to, and it's been a while since we've seen this, but it felt glaring in this episode. We're back to the sort of Vulcan sense of superiority here. Mm-hmm. Where Spock's, mm-hmm. and yet it, it, the argument for it didn't wash. Spock is saying, wow, the Vulcans just wouldn't have known what hit him. Their logic wouldn't have allowed it. Yeah. Because in the entire memory of the Vulcan race, they've never been conquered. So they wouldn't have known what it felt like to be conquered. All all they would have felt was astonishment. Um, and yet they have Ponfar, which is a fight that they go through, a bloodlust <laughs> fight that they go through every seven years. But they wouldn't understand being attacked. Um, They have the idea of ownership because his family has owned land for 2,000 years on Vulcan. And so if there is ownership, there must have been a time where somebody, you know, did something. (laughs) They weren't just sitting around (laughs) being groovy the whole time. Um, They've also got the idea that the Romulans are related to them and that they were sort of like the ones they, they chose not logic, but they chose sort of, you know, fight, fight, fight instead. So they actually you know, do have frames of reference. And we know they have these frames of reference because Spock has told us throughout what we've seen so far of Star Trek that they have these frame of reference or frames of reference rather. Nothing, nothing about what he says here washes with me about they, they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have had any idea. I mean, they've got shields for crying out loud. They're the ones who tell humans, hey, dial it back a notch, okay? Because seriously, you're barbarians (laughs) and you're going to get the whole galaxy killed. So they have an idea that there's stuff out there that'll get them. Yeah, but apparently not these four hundred on the Intrepid. By the way, their ship is called the Intrepid. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they've got an idea about conflict in the galaxy. It's funny that you and I got two very different meanings from that line. And by the way, I don't know if you remember way, 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 way back in I think it was Conscience of the King. Um, Spock says something about not drinking, and McCoy has some quip about, "Well, now I see why you were uh, why your uh, people were conquered." So oh. apparently there was some Vulcan conquering uh, uh, or being conquered way back when. Hmm. That might have been, you know, pre-2000 years ago when Spock's family got all that land. Well, but no, Spock says in there, oh, you found, wow, you found, mm-hmm. a, uh, you found an absolute um, yeah. hole, in the, uh, hole in the story there. 
I yeah. forgot that. Wow. Spock says we've never been conquered. Yeah. Bones disagrees. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and who knows more about Vulcan history? Pointy. Hey, hey, um, well, speaking of the Spock-McCoy kind of conflict, what did you make of the whole eagerness to pilot the shuttle? This whole buildup of them, you know, I'm going to go. No, I'm going to go. McCoy has just turned on a dime because he was the first ready to flee. He's like, look, my responsibility is these people who are falling apart. Let's get out of here. We're in no condition to do this. And he's like, no, 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 pick me, pick me. Yeah. Um, Uh, It kind of felt like it was just, you know. We needed the conflict. We needed um, Kirk yeah. to choose. I, that, that It felt, honestly, that part felt a little cheap to me. I mean, why the faint? Yeah. We're yeah, led we're, to believe that he's choosing Bones right up until the, the moment he chooses Spock. Hey, Scotty, Dr. McCoy will tell you what we need in the shuttle because I'm sending Spock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you had me. I thought for sure you were sending me on this thing that I actually want to go on. The, yeah. the exchange between Spock and Bones at that point is interesting, too. Bones is, like, smarting. You know, from not having been chosen, and he thinks Spock's trying to like steal the glory of the find because both mm-hmm. Bones and Spock have always been about glory, so it makes sense that they would be fighting for it. Uh, Spock says that Bones should grant him his dignity, or at the very least, wish him luck, which Bones only does once Spock is out of earshot. And, yeah. um, you know, with Spock's ears, that means behind two <laughs> right. doors and in another ship on his way out into deeper space. <laughs> right. Later, he tells McCoy from the shuttle that um, McCoy wouldn't have survived. You know, because I think we've mentioned humans suck. Mm-hmm. And then later still, when he's sure, when Spock is sure that he's going to die, he says, you know, tell Dr. McCoy he should have wished me luck. Wow. Mom much? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, where mom is the person in your life. And my mom's not like this. I'm not saying that. But, you know, where mom is the person who says, well, you just, you know, well, it's nice of you to call. You do it so rarely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm doing it now. Okay, maybe I'm- I just I, I hope Kirk doesn't make that a habit uh, what? because you know the well the next time he calls for a landing party, it's like okay, I'm going to need uh, Spock, McCoy, and Kyle. You're not going. Instead, we're taking some Ricky right. and you're putting on a red shirt. You know. <laughs> Because uh, people are like, oh, do I go to the transporter? Wait, do I not? Am I really going to beam down or is he going to fake out again? Yeah, he should. It would be funny if it was like the dating game. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeoman number three. If we were stranded on this planet, how long do you think it would take before we were calling each other by our first names? If you know, you so know f- what I mean. It, it, it's so funny, Ken. I don't know if you meant that as the perfect segue, but to me, that is the perfect segue. Speaking of Kirk and a yeoman. Yeah. Can we talk about what's going on in this episode with the uh, the yo yo men yo women? You mean yo. The, you mean the bookends of sexism? Yeah, boy, that stands <laughs> out. It really stands out because uh, it, it, here's the way I watched it. At the beginning, all I was really concerned about was Kirk's slurring, drunken, hungover opening. We're going to plan, we're going to shore leave, blah blah blah. And at the end, what I paid attention to was. We're relieved, we're happy, but we still need that shore leave. And hey, who's that crossing in front of the captain's chair? Why, it's a new yeoman I haven't met. And it was leering and creepy. And even McCoy's got kind of a smirk on his face. Yeah, who's that? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And then you go back to the beginning, and it's the same thing. Yeah, different yeoman, though. Yeah. Yeah, here's the thing. It's, it's, and, and you know what? He's an adult. He's going to mm-hmm. go out and find an adult. He's probably going to use his status as starship captain to try to get. Um, no, well, we don't want an explicit rating, do we? No, no. Busy. 
Yeah. He's going to use his, you know, status as a starship captain to try to get busy. And that, and that's fine. What's most awful about this, and it's, you know, it's the objectification. I mean, he is doing that thing where he is speaking out his captain's log loud enough for the whole um, for the whole bridge to hear. Certainly, we know Bones can hear it because he's standing right there next to him. And right. so he says that he's looking forward to relaxing on some nice planet. But he's staring <laughs> at the yeoman, and he does it twice. And you're right. At the, at the end, there's almost like a, huh, huh? See what I did yeah, there? I was right. talking about relaxing on a planet, but really, I want to relax on her. I mean, at, or whoever, you know, march right. somebody else by me and I'll, I'll make a sexist joke then too about, you know, and again, I have no problem. If, if Kirk wants to get laid, more power to him, you know, but that belongs in the personal log. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, belongs in the personal log, not when you're sitting on the bridge in the chair and you're surrounded by your, uh, your coworkers. In fairness, he did not say it into the captain's log. So going back and reading it a hundred years later, you won't know why he paused right there. It's the objectification, the open yeah. objectification. That's kind of like, wow, that's, that's, that's creepy and icky. He didn't have to say it. He said it with his eyes. The results of your tests are in. The doctors will be here momentarily to take a look and get you on your way. Well, it's that time where we get to take a look at an episode from the bird's eye view and try to figure out if it stands the test of time and if there are meanings and morals and messages and do those hold up in the 21st century. I have to say, Ken, that to me, that this is not a badly produced episode. In fact, it's a very well produced episode when you look at the special effects and and kind of all the trappings of Star Trek. But unfortunately, it feels kind of like a lazy episode to me. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on it. If I compare it to other things, I have to say that I didn't feel the doom here like we did in the Corbomite Maneuver, mm -hmm. um, because that, that's a really nice element of that show. And there are a lot of good ideas here in search of a better story. You know, um, Kirk deciding to stay and face the danger. We, we're done with that in about five seconds. Um, Spock's psychic connection to other Vulcans is a whole weird thing, which we can uh, <laughs> expound upon it here a little bit more. Um, the, the contrast in dealing with death, you know, we hit upon that in our uh, discussion in his talk with McCoy and, and dealing with the death of one versus a death of 400 or a million. Um, and then the being, the creature and how it relates to life in the universe. Um, we just wrap it all up in a story here where essentially the point is the Enterprise needs to destroy it and get away. Yeah. Um, so the redeeming value of this episode is in the characters and the character stuff is hit or miss. Some of it is very good. Some of it feels forced, forced as in Spock using the force. Can we talk about that a little bit more. Um, Spock, Spock feels the death cry of 400 Vulcans. And it's a thing that we... We know that Spock can have a psychic connection to people. He can do a mind meld when he's touching somebody on the face. He even used a little bit of telekinesis through a wall yeah. in, uh, I believe it was a taste of Armageddon, to to mess with the guard. Well, my assumption uh, is that guard was actually leaning against that wall, so there was still touch. There you go. So it's like a sound wave. It can go through solid objects. Yeah, yeah maybe a little bit. I okay, mean, because I we, like know, we know that he can actually do that with inanimate objects as well because he did it with Nomad. Mm -hmm. And there, oh, is yeah, also, yeah, right. there is also a weird thing here where 
I would be curious to know a bit more about the computers on Vulcan, because Spock says that the 400 Vulcans wouldn't have known what was happening. Even the computers wouldn't have known what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, we always joke about Spock being a computer, or Bones nice. always jokes about Spock being a computer, but um, he's got a real respect for computers. Uh, Nomad not included. Oh, right. and, you know, Vol not included. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. and... Um, uh, Landrew. Red Hour. Thank you, Landrew. Well, no, he, he had respect for Actually, Landrew. he does have respect for Landrew. Yeah, Come yeah, to think yeah. of it, he actually did have respect for Vol as well. Yeah, now mm-hmm. I want to know more about the Vulcans and computers. Maybe we'll get to that at some point. And hopefully it won't be just like a five-minute thing, like we have hyper-intelligent computers because we need them for, you know, this five minutes of this show. Not unlike right. uh, Spock's Jedi ability to hear people scream in terror across the galaxy. Yeah. Because we only use it in this show. We I, was, use it. I, you know, I know we try not to go forward, and I couldn't remember for certain. This doesn't happen again. No, as far as I know, it does not. In fact, there's even, I mean, stepping out of the timeline, and, and honestly, if anything was made for stepping out of the timeline, it is this example. Nero takes Spock and Spock to Vulcan to see it happen. Yeah. You would think if he can feel 400 people on a ship in another part of the galaxy. Wouldn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wouldn't need to bring Spock there for for him to know that uh, his home planet uh, was right. just destroyed. Yeah. I, I don't know. This Honestly, I had I had problems with this episode. I mean, you're right. I think you're mostly right about the uh, about the character moments being hit or miss. I think the only thing you're wrong about there is the hit part. There, mm. was, there was nothing, honestly, about what happened with the characters that rang true. Like I say, I mean, Spock chiding Bones, mm-hmm. that that rings true, except his logic and, and, and the way that he's doing it or why he's doing it or, you know, what he's saying is wrong with humans. I mean, that seemed less like Spock than it seemed just like mild racism. <laughs> you know, like, like if Bones said, well, that's terrible. One person died. Spock would be like, yeah, but you don't care about 400. Okay. And now Bones says, oh, it's terrible that 400 died. Yeah, but you wouldn't care about one. I mean, it basically just, it felt yeah, like, yeah. it felt to me like it was Spock hating for no apparent reason. And then Kirk doing the tease, you know, like, okay, Bones, get ready to sit here. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. there's, you know, right. there's just a lot that, I don't know. And and while while Kirk is, you know, having to choose who's going to go, Spock or McCoy, I mean, honestly, it would have been more Kirk to tell Spock and McCoy, I'm going to choose between the two of you and then sneak off into a shuttle. That yeah. would have been truer to his character, too, because, you know, I, I can't choose between my friends. I mean, it wasn't even clear how it is that he chose that. And then Spock doing the whole, by the way, Bones, you would have died if you'd been here. So really, it's good that I came. <laughs> I mean, there's just, I mean, character wise. And we can't even decide what to call Lieutenant Kyle in this episode. Can you explain that to me, by the way? I had to go Kyle, back Kyle. and check. Kyle. I, yeah. I, I thought that I had been pronouncing his name wrong this whole time. It, it, it's, it's the hungover Kirk voice. It's like, <laughs> is Kyle that, just means, Is that what it Kyle. is? By the way, yeah, you're really, it's, uh, it's Tom Brokaw as James C. Kirk. Lieutenant exactly. Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Oh, okay. So I'm glad we can have fun when, when I personally say there, there just wasn't much of anything. The one thing that worked for me is the idea, like you said earlier, Mm-hmm. how trippy would it have been? Because now we have the Fantastic Voyage. Now we have this episode of Star Trek. Now we've had uh, the Dennis Quaid, Martin Short classic, Inner Space. I mean, we've oh, had yes, so many sure. things now where we're like, we've had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. We have yeah. had uh, science fiction enough and special effects enough to really consider what it would be like to be this tiny little thing, you know, fighting huge battles on a cellular level. Yeah. 
maybe if it were still 1967, 68 when this aired, 67? Uh, uh, 67, yes. Okay. Maybe if it were still 1967 when this first aired and I hadn't seen that, you know, we hadn't grown up with all of those things. Mm -hmm. Maybe then I'd be like, wow, this is trippy. But now I can just look at it and go, I can see where this might have been trippy at some point. Yeah, well, that's just it. I mean, the, the, like I said, it's all the ideas that are there in search of a great episode. The, mm-hmm. the idea is trippy um, and and just sit there and kind of contemplate that is really cool. But where they went with it, like I said, you could do this episode 20 years later, 30 years later and find a, a lot more interesting nuance to explore. Now, here's the thing. I I rarely ever look at other reviews or commentary on an episode before we talk about it. I do my research out of books and uh, IMDb to get trivia, th- things like that. Uh, but I rarely ever look at reviews. This episode, the first time I watched it, I, I have to admit that I was kind of bored by it. Yep. Then I watched it again, and I, I, I believe three times now in preparation for this episode. And it just never quite stuck with me, and I felt like I never had a really strong opinion about it. Mm-hmm. So then I wanted to look at reviews and think, well, well, how do people rank this? You know, And it surprised me that this is actually pretty well regarded. Um, I haven't really oh. talked to other fans about it, but it, but it actually is regarded pretty well. And it's funny because when you and I do a show and we say, oh, okay, well, uh, I'm Mud, eh, not a favorite, Gangsters yeah. of Triskelion, yay. And then we get this feedback, how dare you rank this higher and this one right. lower. Right. And I feel like we're going to be in the same position here because if I say that this episode stands up, which I'm kind of not, it, it's, it, you know, if I had a life indicator, <laughs> on board my computer, right. the life indicator would be tipping toward dead on this one. Um, I, I can't remember which episode it was you talked about a couple of weeks ago, but um, where you were like, I watched it and then I forgot it and watched it again. Right. <laughs> yes. And I still yes. forgot it. I can't remember which episode that was, largely probably because it was forgettable. But that was how I yeah, felt with the immunity yeah. syndrome. I mean, yeah. after I watched it the first time, I, I thought about it like a day later and I couldn't remember a thing. I literally could not remember anything about it. And so I started watching it again. And then I remembered that, as you said, I was bored. And then watching it a third (laughs) time, the only reason I remember as much of it as I do now is because I was writing the recap and taking the notes. And even then, ask me me in a couple of weeks, and and I don't even know. I mean, the effects are groovy, like you Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's just not, sadly, there's just not as much there there as you want there to be. So I think we're both saying that it doesn't hold up, but it's not a it, it's not a definitive Miri kind of doesn't hold up. It's uh, eh, we're a little disappointed that it kind of sort of doesn't hold up. Yeah, it's well, it, it, it's a little offensive in how much they're willing to just you know completely throw away what we've known about the characters to make the fights happen or to make the right you now. I mean, I mean, it's not, but it's not. No, it's not. It's not the worst episode ever. I don't yeah. dislike this as much as I dislike Mary. I'm sure you don't dislike this as much as you dislike the alternative factor. I have yet to find an episode that would, I would put in the same rank as alternative factor. Uh, but because, we may get there. That's because you're drinking. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so by the way, uh, just to be correct, this aired in uh, January 1968 oh, okay. uh, originally. So we, we were close. It filmed in October 67, for those of you playing the home version. Um, is there a meaning here to find, and does that meaning hold up? Boy, help me. 
No, no, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think I think really what this what this episode rests on, or I, I shouldn't say rests, what this episode trades on is is you know the characters that you know, and sort of the trippy um, mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's it. And so you know, if if we can't if if we don't feel like the characters are being respected in the script, and we don't feel like the the situation is nearly as trippy as it used to be. Um, or as it might have been, you know, at another time when it was presented, then um, sadly for me, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I, it's hard to call it a meaning, but the the point to contemplate, it, just the, the the presentation of the idea, I think is fine. And, and that part of it may hold up just to say, hey, look, change your perspective a little bit. Um, we may be entirely insignificant. Science fiction kind of does that in an interesting way, says, hey, look, we're, uh, uh, we're one organism on an insignificant planet in a tiny corner of a not so spectacular galaxy, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and if this is one of those that sort of allows you to adjust your perspective a little bit, that we are not the biggest, most important thing in the universe, then that can be kind of cool. But wrapping that into a story that really has a bigger meaning, I don't necessarily think it's there. Yeah, the total perspective vortex actually does that much better and in a much more funny way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's really what I'm looking for. If you're going to tell me I'm insignificant, make me laugh at the same time, won't you? There you go. Well, Ken, next week we're going to shift gears a little bit. And, uh, you know, if you don't like those big, loud, messy wars, well, I got something for you. A private little war. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. You know, given Spock's newfound Jedi ability, it occurs to me, maybe the giant space organism, was a metachlorian. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.